Good morning, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. We're delighted to have you here for this Professional Practices Alliance webinar. What we're doing is we're sort of building on our growth strategy um, series of webinars, and we've got a two-part mini-series, which makes me feel like some kind of HBO executive, um, on mergers. And today's session is going to be focusing on the sort of the preparatory stage, should we merge, how do we prepare for a merger, and then the session on Thursday at half past nine is going to be more about the implementation of a, of a merger and the process sort of leading into mergers. So that sort of second phase when it's looking like a done deal, but as, we've, um, as, we've, as we will come to hear, uh, it's not always that straightforward. In terms of a couple of housekeeping notices, you've probably um, heard when you joined that the uh, webinar is being recorded. So just to make you aware of that, um, we're really keen that this is an interactive, a fluid discussion and that we hear from uh, from you who are here today. So please do use uh, the chat function to sort of submit your um, questions, comments, objections, uh, wh whatever it is that, that you want. We, we're really keen to hear from you and we'll get the panel sort of to pick up on, on those points. Um, it's, it's, a, it's an interactive format. So again, if you've got any particular questions, then you can sort of unmute and ask that question. Just, just let me know in the chat function. But because of that, I would ask if, if you wouldn't mind just keeping yourself on, on mute so that the background noise doesn't interfere with the, the panelists speaking. A bit of terminology for us in terms of mergers. I think it's fair to say that a merger of true equals is a very rare concept. So when we're talking about mergers here, we're talking about being acquired by, taking over a firm, really merger in the very broadest sense in terms of a combination of, of, of two professional services firms. We might touch on, on legal firms specifically because there are one or two issues that are um, relevant, particularly to kind of firms within a more regulated environment, but we are talking here more generally about professional services firms in the round. So before we get cracking on the discussion itself, I'm just gonna spend a couple of moments introducing our panel. Um, I'm delighted to have two guest speakers with us today. Um, looking to my immediate right on my Zoom screen, apologies if this isn't how you see it yourselves, is Simon Slater. Simon Slater has, a, has had a really, really interesting and varied career, and he has a portfolio of roles now, uh, mainly non-executive roles uh, in the legal services sector. Um, so he has a, a real insight into uh, law firm management particularly, and has, um, as I hope we'll hear shortly, guided, I think, three that he's prepared to admit to uh, firms to successful mergers. So a real wealth of experience to share with us today. We've got uh, Giles Mercy, Giles Murphy, uh, who has also joined us um, at, from Smith & Williamson, soon to be Evelyn Partners. Uh, Giles is Head of Professional Practices. Um, he's on the audit side, but um, has a real sort of helicopter type approach to things so this can bring a real wealth not not just the pure sort of audit experience but the there's all the numbers stuff uh, I, i've already apologized to him to reducing him just down to numbers so i shall continue to do that <laughs> uh, we've got rob millard from cambridge strategy group who is uh, a real expert on strategy and and on, on advising professional services firms again loads of experience in the legal services market so some really interesting insights there and, and last but not least, we've got Zulu Be Zulon Begum. I'm getting all of your names wrong. Out of everything to get wrong, names is a really important one. So I do apologise. Zulon Begum from CM Murray. She's a partner there. And she advises on professional services firms, on murders, on LLP conversions, on all sorts of transactions uh, relating to, to, to professional services firms, as long as lots of other, other things. So she brings a, a wealth of practical experience of overseeing these processes and really guiding uh, the management team through the through the entire process um, and then behind the scenes we've also got Stuart Smith and thank you to him from CM Murray who is um, actually the, 
<laughs> the person without whom we couldn't do all of this because he's very much holding the reins for the Zoom. So Stuart, thank you very much. Um, before we get started on, on some really in-depth discussion, I'm, I'm gonna kick us off today by asking each of the speakers just to, just to start off by telling us their 30 seconds on what they believe the most important thing that a firm needs to keep in mind if they're considering a merger. And I wonder, Simon, whether we can come to you first on that. Sure, yes, good morning, everybody. Um, well, as far as I'm concerned, um, I think having the significant majority of partners within your firm, um, at least philosophically aligned with the notion of merger, um, is a prerequisite. And of course, um, the larger the firm, the more difficult it is to, to, to get 100% of partners on, on board. Uh, but equally, the smaller the firm, I think the more critical it is actually that you do get 100% on board before you even start any conversations with anybody. Um, so I think partner commitment would be my answer. Great. Thanks very much, Simon. And uh, Giles? Uh, good morning, everyone. So I'm going to go for fail fast. I think we observe too many uh, scenarios where firms spend many, many months discussing a possible merger only to find that the deal breaker is something that they'd identified early on in the process uh, and had sort of ignored. I, I love that one because that, that leads beautifully into the reverse due diligence stuff that Zulon's going to cover later. <laughs> That's great. Um, and Zulon. Hi, thanks, Corey, and hello, everyone. Um, I would say that even if you're not specifically thinking about merger now, it's always worth being prepared. So doing um, an element of looking under your, your own bonnet and kicking your own tires to ensure that your house is in order. So if there was an opportunity that presented itself, that you're ready to kind of move fairly fast. And we can, I'll go on to talk later on about looking at your constitution and, and the reverse due, due diligence piece. Fantastic. Thank you. And, and last but not least, Rob. Thanks, Karina. And hello, everyone. Uh, before we, we say why merge, let's take back and, uh, step back and say why grow. And, and firms want to grow for, for what, one reason, really, and that's to improve their resources, increase their resource, resources in order to service clients better. And not just any resources, resources that are valuable, that are rare in the market, that are difficult to imitate, and the firm's organized to exploit. So Vrio, Vrio resources is what the strategy literature talks about, and this is the preeminent model for competitive advantage. So there are ways of achieving that uh, for, for a firm. You can, um, you, you, you can grow organically, or you can laterally hire, or you can develop alliances, or you can merge. And merge is the most difficult and the most risky of those strategies. So my answer would be don't do it unless you have to. Thank you very much. A sort of a mix of positive and negative there, but good, good to know. Um, I, I wondered whether we could ask you, Rob, just to expand in a little more detail about what the kind of the right reasons for considering a merger are, um, possibly thinking about both the sort of positive and the negative perspectives. And, and if you wouldn't mind also thinking about when the right time to consider a merger would be. Well, it, go, it goes back to those real resources and what the objectives is that you, are that you are trying to achieve. What is your strategy? And if you can achieve your strategy with organic growth or with uh, lateral hires or with alliances, then, then I reiterate, uh, mergers should be at the bottom of the list. But if you can't, then it's really the only way of achieving it. So then it's a matter of which merger partner would allow us to meet the objectives. It all has to be strategy driven. Great. So we've got we've got this sort of idea that how, how do you decide what your strategy is? I don't know, Simon, whether you want to comment on how you sort of come up with that strategy. How do you work out what, what your strategy is? Well, I mean, I think Rob's absolutely right to 
keep bringing it back to, to strategy, it has to be driven by what the strategic objectives of the organization are. Before I comment on that, though, I think, um, you know, why, why merge for positive reasons? Well, sheer ambition and vision and scale can be one of the, one of the drivers. Um, the national and now global firms that we have, for example, DLA Piper, Eversheds and some others, wouldn't exist but for the um, ambitious visions of actually quite a few people. Um, and uh, that was all about building law firms of scale, but also of quality over the long term. Um, on the more negative side, I think, you know, we're, we're all very well aware of, um, you know, firms that have perhaps found themselves in a position where they've, you know, perhaps economically they're not performing very well and they may well be in a distressed position. But I think um, beyond that, actually, there are, there are firms that, that um, are probably suffering from what I might call stagnation. They're, they're, they're just finding it very difficult to grow in the areas they want to grow. In other words, to attract those resources that Rob was talking about. And, you know, that, that actually is not necessarily a negative. It's, it's actually um, quite a good platform to build a case for merging. Um, so I put a positive spin on that. Um, it, in terms of strategic objectives, I, I, I tend to, when, when I have spoken to partners about this in my experience, what I've tended to do is to take, given that there is an existing uh, strategy, perhaps covering three to five years, um, take the key objectives out of that and, and build a handful of criteria that meet the strategic objectives of the, of the firm. And those criteria become the drivers for any merger discussion. Well, in fact, they become the drivers for the research, first of all, um, into, to, into market and, and then for discussions with firms that seem to fit. Um, and going back to my first point about getting having partners on board, those partners must absolutely um, support that that, that hand, handful of criteria are the ones that really matter to that firm. Um, and if you can tick four out of the five boxes, as Giles said, uh, you're probably doing pretty well. Thank you very much. And, and, and that neatly brings us to Giles, actually, because Giles, when you're sitting in a, in a meeting with possibly kind of the annual audit meeting, so you get sort of nice regular opportunities to talk to your clients with maybe the managing partner, the CFO or the FD. When you're looking at a firm's finances and financial strength, are there any um, signs or indicators in, particularly, in particular that would lead you to sort of to initiate a discussion about whether firms have considered perhaps a merger as part of their growth strategy? Yeah, I mean, maybe just to repeat what's been said already. Ready. I mean, it's, a, it's an oft-used phrase, but oft-forgotten, that a merger is not a strategy in itself. It may be a way of executing your strategy, and you need to go back to what are you trying to achieve. Uh, I think Rob was very clear in that, you know, mergers are, are risky. So, you know, if your strategy is to grow, can you do that organically? Do you need to bring in lateral hires? And I think a merger should really be, be third on that list. Um, and it should not be considered sort of an, an easy option. Um, I think in terms of mergers, uh, when we're looking at opportunities, we often refer to the five Ps uh, as reasons why 
uh, mergers might not work. And if I can remember them quickly, it's it's profile, either name of the of the, the organization. Uh, second P is people, the culture within the organization. Uh, and then we turn to sort of the three sort of financial ones, which are firstly profits. If you've got two firms with distinctly different profit shares and PEP, it's going to be difficult to bring them together because invariably there's some dilution there. Um, property um, can be quite a significant barrier, particularly in this world uh, of more flexible, agile working that we're living in. Long leases are, are a problem. Uh, and then, of course, uh, while it may be rare, it is very much a deal breaker. But if there are significant defined benefit pension schemes or annuities within there, um, those, those can be barriers. So I, I take you back to my sort of fail fast sort of uh, analogy. Uh, I think it's important that when we're talking to a firm, if they are looking at merging, they identify the potential issues up front and they address them. And if they can't address them, fine, they move on, but they don't waste unnecessary time. Thank you very much. That, that's really interesting. So a firm has sort of sat down, it's thought about its strategy, uh, about its strategic objectives, and it's concluded that um, despite the risk, um, it, it ought to be considering or it wants to be considering um, some form of, of merger or combination. Um, I wondered whether Robin and Simon, perhaps um, Simon, if you, if you wouldn't mind sharing your views first, um, how do you find a merger partner. I mean, I, I, I as an advisor get, get involved once people have sort of started the discussions and it is a sort of a mysterious world to me. How, how do you realise that this firm and that firm want to talk, want to, talk to each other, want, want to merge? Is it as simple as, and then kind of professional firm Tinder, swipe right to merge and swipe left to sort of you know, stagnate? I haven't got to that stage yet, um, thankfully. Um, uh, I think probably there are three elements to this, Corinne. Um, what, what one is, I always encourage um, managing partners, senior partners, chief executives of law firms to um, practice what they preach, actually, and network um, within um, their universe just as much as they encourage their partners to. Um, so to build relationships with um, like-minded managing partners of other firms, number one. And a lot of that goes on. It, it absolutely does. Number two, um, often firms will appoint um, a merger broker with, you know, with a specific brief. Um, that's rarely been the case, actually, in the mergers I've been involved with. There have been other advisors involved in the uh, merger negotiations, um, but very seldom has there been a merger broker involved. Um, that is not to say there isn't a place for them. Um, they, there actually can be. Um, but in the smaller mergers that I've been involved with, I've tended to do that initial research myself, actually, and apply very rigorously those criteria I mentioned to selecting firms that on paper, at least, um, look as if they might be, uh, might be a fit. Um, and I think then thirdly, beyond um, networking with uh, managing partners of other firms, um, actually being quite visible in the market in terms of other connections, um, forming relationships with other influencers um, whom you trust and maybe sharing your broader long-term strategic goals with them so that they have, um, you know, they can be your eyes and ears out there in the market for you uh, discreetly. Um, and quite often that, that can throw up opportunities in my experience. 
and and Rob, you have a slightly different perspective. Obviously, Simon's looking at it sort of from from the inside out, but your your experience presumably is from from the outside in. In, in your experience, how how have the successful merged firms sort of found each other? Well, I think Simon's raised the most important point, which is that it is a people business, and it uh, you you're putting groups of people together, and it's actually surprising how often. Uh, when firms merge, especially when they merge successfully, when you dig into it, you'll find that those 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 uh, professionals, lawyers or otherwise, had had relationships for a long time. Sometimes the managing partners had studied law together. It goes back that far. There needs to be that level of trust. So there's that human element, which is absolutely crucial. Uh, I think if you step back and you look at it uh, sort of theoretically, it, it, it's not that difficult. I mean, there, there's enough information on firms' websites to be able to go and do some rudimentary analysis and say, well, firm A would be a good fit because, you know, they've got, they're, they're very similar to us and they've got, uh, uh, when you put the practices together, we'd be stronger. Uh, and... Um, so, so, so it's, it's, it's really a two-step process. But if you look at what constitutes a successful merger, the, the way I do that, or what I did with my doctoral research, was with a very narrow lens. I, I looked at after two years, two years after the merger, is the merged firm more profitable or at least equally as profitable as the most more profitable of the legacy firms? Question one. Question two, and I only looked at big firms, remember, so, so this may be less relevant to smaller firms, but um, uh, the, the league table rankings, are they ranked in more highly and in more areas than they were before? And if the answer is yes, then that's a successful merger. Uh, and if the answer was no, then in my book, it is, was not a successful merger. And on that basis, about half mergers, half the mergers I looked at were successful. So that brings us back to the question, is this going to make us more profitable and is this going to make us stronger, our bench strength stronger? And look for firms that where the answer to that is yes. But don't forget Simon's point. It's a people game. Yeah, and maybe if I could just butt in there, there Corin. I mean, I can probably say this safely because I'm on Zoom, not in a meeting room with everyone, but I'm being slightly critical of the profession. I mean, we often joke about the sort of the golf club conversation where two managing partners, senior partners, bump into each other and start discussing about the concept of putting their two firms together, um, maybe so they can play more golf. But I think it's important to take a step back and look at this strategically. And I think it's interesting if you were to talk to a corporate financier in the corporate markets, where they're advising you know, big companies, medium-sized companies about their strategy, um, they would sit down and say, okay, so what are we doing? What do we want to do? Let's find a partner that we can merge with, acquire, that does that bit we don't actually have. And they go out there with that as the premise. And coming back to Rob's comment there, it's interesting that, you know, in his research, half of mergers fail. Uh, I'd, I'd love to sort of take that a stage further and possibly even ask the question, did you meet at the golf club uh, in relation to those that uh, didn't do well and see whether there is a correlation? I mean, it's a slightly flippant point, but, I, but I do, it does concern me that not enough planning is done up front. I think, I think it's a good point and, and it raises sort of the, another topic around diversity and inclusion, because if, if people are resorting to the sort of the 1980s model of, of sort of combinations and so on, you, you do wonder whether that will have an impact on things like diversity and inclusion. Um, but I mean, I, that's speculation on my part, of course. Um, and I guess the, I'm really interested by the idea of, of merger brokers, because I think a lot of, a lot of particularly smaller firms would say, 
haven't got time for this. I haven't got the expertise for that. You know, big firms, they can do this because they've got the whole department of management doing this. But I'm a fee earning partner, you know, and I'm supposed to somehow kind of broker a merger as well as kind of keep my clients happy and look after my partners and so on and so forth. Um, I know, Simon, when you and I were, were chatting in advance of this, this call, I, I confess to you, I have no idea how or how much a merger broker charges or whether they're any good. I, I wondered whether you're able to share your, your thoughts on, on whether or not sort of a merger broker is a good idea. Um, it, it feels like a good place to start for people who have absolutely no idea what they're doing with the greatest respect, um, or, or is that sort of a false economy? I, th I think um, <clears throat> what I'm about to say is, is not, not based on having ever used a merger broker, uh, but I have had plenty of conversations with, with them. Um, I think, first of all, um, only a point one, if you are absolutely confident that you can trust that person, because it is the ultimate transaction. Um, it's a little <clears throat> bit like recruitment, um, in chasing the fee, getting a deal over the line. What you really want is somebody who, who, who is, uh, really cares about putting two businesses together that really match. Um, someone you can trust to be discreet in the marketplace. Um, and those people do exist. But unfortunately, they are undermined by um, rather more people who don't follow those standards, uh, in my experience. Um, and from those conversations that I have had, my understanding is that they're a little bit like real estate agents, that they charge by reference to a, um, a percentage um, of... Um, I think I'm right in saying of the combined re potential revenue of the two firms that are being merged, um, or indeed three firms, or <laughs> however many firms are involved in the deal. Um, and um, going back a number of years now, the sorts of numbers thrown around in terms of percentage were ranged between one and two and a half percent, I would say. Um, probably more like one and a half percent. That, that's my understanding, but others may have more, more information. Mm. I, I, to, to me, it's a totally mysterious world. So, so those insights, although I accept entirely your caveat about whether or not you know individual uh, brokers would, would operate on that basis, I think those are really interesting insights because it is a world that a lot of us don't understand. Um, I, I wonder whether we should come on now to sort of the preparatory stage. So we've, we've talked about should you merge, how you work out whether you should merge. Let, let's assume that you're seriously considering um, a merger um, and you think it's strategically the right option to pursue. Um, Rob, are you able just to sort of to just to spend a couple of moments talking to us about that question of, right, you've decided this is what you want to do. You've kind of identified a, maybe a shortlist. I mean, what do you actually do now with that sort of shortlist? You've done your research, you've done your homework, you've been around their websites, you've, you've maybe had one conversation, one or two conversations at, at the golf club, but let's assume you don't know all of the managing partners of the sort of target firms that you've identified. How do you, how do you translate your shortlist into actually a discussion? Do you talk to all of them? Do you put them in priorities? No, how would you manage that process to, to get into the formal, why we're thinking about this sort of stage of the process? There's another piece of research that's necessary, and that is, can we combine these two businesses? And, and that's not something you can just do desktop. I mean, you can do desktop and you can look at systems and you can look at culture and you can you know, sort of look at an arm's length with uh, what the likelihood of being able to put the, the two firms together is. But 
the biggest the biggest problem is, is post-merger uh, during the integration process. Um, so even if there's a, a perfect business case to, to combine two firms, it may crash simply because the partners don't work well together. This comes back to uh, what Simon said about having all the partners on board, or at least the, vast, the, the partners that you want to keep. Uh, so uh, there, there needs to then be a discussion within the firm to begin with, a, a small group of, of partners, and remembering that uh, uh, the, the market is is hugely porous for news. Uh, so the chances of it hitting the press is, is is great, very very high if you don't keep it very discreet and very small. And so you have a small group of partners that discuss what this would look like if we were to combine these two firms, and then engage with the other firm around a very very narrow topic. Uh, you know, what if, not should we, just what if, and and then could very uh, and and I would say if it depends uh, whether it's with one firm or a number of firms would depend on how strong the case is across the firms. If there's a, a clear first choice, second choice, third choice, then start with first, and then move on. But if you've got a couple that look pretty much similar in in in, in potential, then you may have to have several conversations. But at this point, it's it's absolutely crucial to keep it keep it confidential because if it gets into the press, that could kill it just on its own. Thank you. And, and a brilliant little trail for our session on Thursday, where we sort of talk about the importance of sort of post-merger integration and, and, and how that's just as important as the preparatory stage. So, so thank you. Um, and I think it does lead quite nicely, Zulon, into um, the comments that you made at the start of the session around kicking the tyres, making sure your house is in order. There were a lot of metaphors there. Um, but I do, I do think that it's a really good point. How so, so Rob and his team are helping the management team sort of ask what if with potential merger partners, but possibly at that time or even beforehand, you need to make sure that the firm is attractive to a potential merger firm. What sort of housekeeping are firms going to be doing to, to make sure that they're ready to have those discussions or when the due diligence process starts, they're not going to be embarrassed about sort of sharing that information with potential partners? Yes, I, I think some of the points I'm going to mention are probably apply way before you might even get to the stage of having serious discussions with a potential merger partner. And certainly when I do constitutional reviews for, for clients, I have, you know, have the possibility of a potential merger in my mind when I'm advising them on certain provisions in the agreement. So, um, you know, the, one of the key things from a legal perspective is ensuring that your constitution itself facilitates potential murder rather than um, hinders it. So ensuring that you have um, realistic partner approval thresholds. And um, Simon mentioned earlier about, you know, that's one of the key things to ensure that your partners are on board, but also ensuring that, you know, you follow the, the correct process and the approval thresholds required under your partnership agreement to get any merger over the line. And, and having a think about that in advance, really. So if you have a, a, an agreement which says you need unanimous consent, for a partnership merger, that's going to be a merger stumbling block, and gonna, it's uh, unless you're a you know small ten partner firm where everybody is is um, you know going in the same same direction, it's going to be virtually impossible for you to get any kind of um, merger over the line. So having to think about that in advance, what is a realistic threshold for you to have in your agreement, and what is that process that you need to follow? Um, and Rob mentioned earlier about leaky, <laughs> leaky partnerships and confidentiality, ensuring you have 
you know, um, very solid confidentiality provisions in your partnership agreement, as well as, of course, having in place an NDA um, with any potential merger partner that you might have discussions with is important to ensure that you keep any discussions under wraps until you're you're ready to um, announce it to the market so that you can shape that narrative. Um, and in terms of provisions in your partnership agreement, making sure that you have um, clear kind of sanctions against your against any partners that do breach those do breach those obligations of confidentiality. Um, another key thing that we often find, um, especially when uh, a sudden opportunity comes around, the you know is presented to a firm, and in in a market now where you have some firms with quite deep pockets um, and war chests to make acquisitions and actually pay real money to make acquisitions of firms. Um, one of the things I found is that many, many professional services firms haven't even thought about the possibility of um, being paid money to merge their firm with another one and don't actually cater for it in their partnership agreements. So having an advanced think about how would you distribute any capital profits that might be realized on the sale of your business? Because if you don't have anything in the agreement, the most likely position is will be that it will be the same as you share your your kind of normal revenue profits so the same principles would probably apply and that might not be appropriate to your firm um uh, and that can be a major kind of um create create bad blood amongst partners um when it comes to the discussion about how you divide the divide the spoils of any kind of uh, capital profits that come come about because of a merger so thinking about that way in advance is is, is a good idea and um, locking that into your agreement. The other few things I'd mention in, in terms of constitution are ensuring you have provisions to protect kind of partner stickability, um, you know, around notice periods, around restrictive covenants, uh, all those kind of things are important because whenever you know in, in any kind of merger strategic um, uh, uh, change for a firm, it creates instability. Uh, and if your fir if your par partners are not required to give you long notice periods or don't have covenants, it's easier for them to jump ship if they if they're not happy with the way that they think the firm's going. So having those protections in the in the firm's constitution is really key. Um, the other key thing is, and this is usual kind of house housekeeping for any professional services firm, is that is that you're kind of dealing with any underperforming partners. And don't think of a merger as being the solution to dealing with underperforming partners, because that's sometimes uh, that's the for some firms think that's the only way they can get, you know, get shots of partners that they haven't been able to get shots of is, is through a merger itself. Don't think of that as being six silver bullet bullets have in place, you know, constitution, realistic ways of actually managing underperformance. Um, and also think about in advance about other stumbling stumbling blocks that might come across um, uh, in your constitution um, and your partner structure itself around remuneration. Is it is is your current remuneration structure um, a, a kind of a good good kind of um, platform for you to go out and find a, a, an appropriate merger partner? Um, and also things like governance and culture, uh, other speakers have spoke, spoken about, but some of those things can actually be generated through the way you're managed through your constitution. Um, and those will be key issues when you're discussing any merger with, with a potential merger partner. So um, thinking about where, where you are now in terms of those, th those issues, governance and remuneration, and where you're willing to com compromise when it comes to those discussions with the other party. 
thank you, Zolon. Loads of things to unpack there. So, so a great number of things. I'd like just to pick up on on one of the comments you made there about capital profits. Um, it's funny you say that about you know some firms being acquired for, for value and my experience is, is often the opposite where you talk to firms and there's a great disappointment there's great expectation and particularly among some of the senior partners that they're sitting on a gold mine that they're going to be paid riches beyond their, their wildest dreams to merge and, and there's often a disappointment there and I wondered Giles I know it's not quite your sort of area of expertise but it would be really useful to get your perspective from um, from a numbers point of view um, to, to understand if there is sort of money changing hands or if there is an ability to structure the merger in a certain way and um, whether to achieve a particular sort of accountancy outcome or indeed a tax outcome are there specific things that a, a firm or the firms should be thinking about or is it a case of what happens happens and it, and it just is the tax so, so i think as a, as a starting point a caveat i think broadly we're talking about llps or LLPs and partnerships merging here, um, but clearly there are now an increasing number of companies uh, operating uh, as law firms in the market. So that's just a pointer to look out for, because clearly if you're merging with a company, there may be tax consequences. But I think coming back to LLPs, I think quite often there is the view that, uh, well, this will be tax neutral. Tax isn't going to be a problem. Just be careful on that one would be would be my view. Um, I mean, you mentioned sort of capital changing hands, perhaps the best analogy, although most people on the call probably wouldn't deem this to be a merger, is just seeing what Knights are doing in terms of uh, acquiring, merging with um, other firms. Uh, I mean, you can see the structuring of those transactions if you go onto the Knights website, uh, and they are looking at paying a capital sum there. Now, you know, the, the broad parameter for tax is that if you can get your receipt as a capital payment, um, that will be um, at worst under capital gains tax. You might even get uh, entrepreneurs relief or business asset disposal relief. And that is likely to be much preferable to income tax. So if you look at the sort of the Knights type structure, what they're really doing is paying out a few years worth of profit share as an upfront capital sum. Um, and you know, at another time, we can go into that in a lot more detail. The other point I would just mention um, on LLPs, though, is just be careful also about how the different firms reserve for taxation. Now, this is more of an accounting issue than a tax issue. But if you've got firms who reserve on different bases, then you will need to agree on a unified way of reserving for tax going forwards. And that may well result either in one firm having or partners of one firm having to leave more money in the business or maybe partners in another firm actually getting more cash out. Now, being the prudent individual I am, I would never advise that on a merger there's extra cash being paid out. But that might lead to some quirky numbers in your cash flow um, projections. Uh, and dare I say it on the horizon, if you're an April year end uh, basis period reform coming up, th there's quite a lot to think about in terms of the, the merger, the post merger cash flows uh, and how tax reserving can impact those. I think that's that's really valuable. Thank you. Thank you very much, Charles. And it sort of builds on, on some some of the points that I think we need to come to now around that that due diligence piece. And one of the first things I mean, first of all, you're going to think about heads of terms with a potential merger partner. But you're already going to be starting to sort of think about kind of the start of the due diligence exercise. That heads of terms discussion is going to be part partly used to tease out 
where the stumbling blocks are going to lie. And, and, and to Giles's point, that then you have the opportunity to fail fast rather than to drag out the discussions um, endlessly. I wondered whether Simon uh, and Rob, you're able just to sort of highlight some of the key stumbling blocks that you feel you might encounter and therefore you should be dealing with really early on in those early discussions or the sort of when you're starting to get into heads of terms discussions but what would you consider those really key things to cover off really early on well most of them have got a label culture uh, yeah. but uh, you have to dig into that you know culture could mean all sorts of things to all sorts yeah. of different people and specifically it's uh, how do we compensate each other how but, but yes but how do how, what do we value uh, what, what what does performance mean in our firm? Um, how do we make decisions? Uh, how does mm. governance work? I mean, are we, is it very dispersed or are there a small group of people that make all the decisions? These can be immensely uh, important trump, uh, stumbling blocks. Uh, and, and so it's important for, at a very early stage to have a discussion with, about those and whether they are likely to be stumbling blocks. I mean, if the firm that's the target is, is in a, a measure of distress, which may not be on the verge of bankruptcy, it may be just be that they've lost one or two key players and they don't think that they're uh, really that viable anymore. As a, and, and so they're looking for a white knight. It may be that they say, well, yes, of course, we're very different, but we're prepared to you know, chuck all that because uh, it's more important to become part of uh, a merged firm. But those conversations, I think, are crucial at as early stage as possible. Anything that is uh, that, that will put, shine a light on how easy will it be to combine these two businesses into a single entity uh, needs to happen early. So I think we, you mentioned in a previous discussion, uh, Corinne, uh, this concept of reverse due diligence. And I do think taking some time to take a, a long, hard look in the mirror and do the housekeeping that uh, Zulon um, re referred to is a very worthwhile exercise. Um, any managing partner of any firm will know um, where the skeletons are and what they look like and, and the fact that they need to be dealt with um, because they'll need to be dealt with sooner or, or later. Um, then I think when it comes to heads of terms, uh, I always encourage the partners I've worked with to uh, keep the red lines to a minimum if, poss if possible. Um, and um, I, I, it's back to that word compromise that Zulon also mentioned, uh, you know, and I think Giles also mentioned it. One does need to be prepared to compromise on in certain areas. However, there will be two or three, maybe four red lines over which um, a partnership will not compromise. And that needs to be made very clear um, even before one gets to um, uh, heads of terms, pro probably. Um, I just wanted to say something a bit more about this whole area of preparation, um, which Zulai introduced right at the very top. Um, I was privileged enough to be a member of the leadership team which um, planned and executed the merger to form Eversheds 20 years ago. Um, still unique, I think, in the market in being a seven-way merger, um, which is quite a big undertaking to say the very least. But the point I really wanted to make was they got seven mid-sized regional practices together philosophically around the vision of creating a national firm. They agreed broad heads of terms, and then they embarked upon a three-year period of pre-merger harmonization around those heads of terms. And um, you know, just to take one metric, you know, to bring all seven firms to a minimum net margin, net profit margin threshold. Would have, that's the obvious one. 
but there were many other metrics to do with people or marketing or compliance or, or finance um, and technology, of course, that uh, they, they had a plan for called pre-merger harmonization. And of course, the benefit of that was that it forced people to work together so that the post-merger integration wasn't so difficult. So I mention that because it's quite thought-provoking. And I, I like that as well, because the, the way I've been thinking about it is that the, the kind of the heads then flow into sort of the due diligence process and sort of getting your house into order. But this idea that you've got your strategy and then you say, right, OK, let's all work towards the merger in a significant period of time is is, is a more unusual approach. But you can see the, the logic to it in terms of the very clear phases, pre-merger and, and, and post-merger. Um, and I wonder, whilst, um, whilst we have you, Simon, whether you could... Con comment on the point that, that Zulon made up, which I thought was really interesting. I think she's, she's quite right to, to highlight the difficulties in terms of deciding when you get a decision from the partners. Um, and, and Rob's got some thoughts on this as well, great. But, and, and the sort of the leakiness that you, you've all alluded to, but how do you manage that in practice? Because do management go away and put a merger together and then put it to the partners? Or do you talk to all the partners really early on? I mean, in, in practice, how do you manage that dynamic? That tension. I think it. I think it rather depends on the size of the practice. So, in in, in the case of the most recent merger I was involved with to form Crips Pemberton Greenish, you know, I was the I was the chief executive of a smaller party, um, twelve partners, eight of whom were equity partners, and so um, it was critical for me to get those twelve people actually coalesced around the notion of partner and, and actively wanting to pursue it. Mm. Um, and um, so, so that's the approach I took there. Um, it, it's um, I, in the case of Eversheds, you know, it was very much driven by the vision of fewer than a handful of people um, who just happened to actually be, be based in Leeds and Birmingham, who, mm. who created a vision, shared a vision and wanted to make it happen. And they used their skills of persuasion and influence over other practices around the country and the partnerships um, to, to build enthusiasm around the concept. Um, but, but Rob, I think you wanted to come in. Mm. Yeah, just on, on the topic of reverse uh, due diligence and red Great. lines, uh, there's, there's a question of clients and which clients are you going to be prepared to, to uh, to sever the relationship with because conflicts are, are one of the biggest stumbling blocks as well. And it may be that if it's a firm-wide client, several partners advising them that it's a firm-wide decision, otherwise it may be linked to a single individual, then the, the, the key is uh, how important is this individual going to be in the firm going forward, the combined firm? But, mm. Really interesting and a, and a great point, Rob, thank you. And actually, Zulon, I wonder if you can, you can comment on the sort of the technical challenges around that, that conflicts point. I, I don't want to tread on Andrew's toes from, from the session on Thursday, but, but I, I can't let it pass without some comments about some of the SRA side on, on, a, on a law firm merger. Well, if you follow the SRA rules to the letter, you can't actually execute a merger and share any confidential client information with the other party to your, to your merger unless you have um, your client-specific consent. Um, which if you're a firm of any size, 
it, it's very difficult to get and um, it also connects with an issue around confidentiality and leakiness of the of the potential deal so it becomes almost almost impossible um, but the key thing, I think, if you are kind of, I mean, that there will inevitably be some sharing of information. What you need to do is to ensure that you, you've protected yourself in your NDA around your obligations to disclose any information to the other party um, and that you're complying with your um, professional rules at, 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 at all times to make sure that, you know, you're not falling foul of anything. But it is an incredibly tricky point to navigate when you're when you're kind of um you know sharing information around clients as part of a merger process and andrew's going to go into much better and more detail on on thursday about it and and one of the challenges i, I found an advisor and i see among the attendees we've got a number of advisors uh, joined us today is that um firms want to take a view on that um and and that's Quite difficult because as an advisor we can't stand that can't stand beside that you know the the, the sra is a, is a self-reporting system so it's it's quite challenging for firms to take a view in the legal services sector in, in that way now i'm conscious of time we've got about 10 minutes left so do do feel free to submit a q a uh, via the chat function if you want to i've actually got one question here um which is asking about whether um it's worth exploring the the concept of a sort of a a defensive merger or, or a merger of necessity, because our focus has been very much on sort of focusing on, on growth and, and achieving a growth ambition. But um, I, I don't know whether anybody would like to pick up that question about, around whether firms ought to be considering uh, a, a defensive merger. Rob, great, thank you. <laughs> well, we'll go right back to the beginning of the webinar. You said that in, in terms of definitions, uh, we're talking yeah. about mergers where there's an acquirer and a target. Yeah. And, and almost always the target is, is in defensive um that this is not something you do for fun a merger so it's absolutely a reason to to look at a merger uh there's a slightly different approach but in the 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 the, the key points that have been raised on this merger are the same for target and and, and and acquirer in terms of preparing in terms of thinking who the best partner would be in terms of the initial approach um yeah and i see it often not just not because the firm isn't doing financially but it it's because there's no succession mm -hmm. um, and that is finding it difficult to hire lateral partners or grow their own partners. And, you know, the, the, the current crop of partners or the founders are coming up to retirement. And especially if you're in a regulated sphere, like say, if you're a law firm, you, you come up with the issues around um, professional indemnity runoff insurance, which is incredibly expensive and all the other costs of winding down, to, down a firm. So the only real option for you in those circumstances is a merger. And I think just on that, Corin, I think that also raises some interesting questions with regard to what due diligence is then done. Because if we assume for a moment that the, uh, the defensive firm is the smaller firm, clearly the acquirer, the larger firm, will do a lot of due diligence on the defensive firm. But what almost if any due diligence should the smaller firm do on the larger firm because the the underlying assumption will almost certainly be well they're just going to adopt all the systems all the processes and procedures of the larger firm and what ability do they have to negotiate or influence the outcome of all of this you know I can't help but feel you'd want to do some due diligence but actually your ability to get access to necessary information as I say influence things may well be somewhat limited. 
and, and if you've left it to the last minute, then you, you might find you haven't got a range of options anyway. Sorry, Simon, I spoke across you there. Um, yeah, I was just going to say, but I don't mind sharing with you all um, that the the merger of Pemberton Greenish with Crips was, from Pemberton Greenish's point of view, a defensive merger in the, in the, in the terms that we're discussing it here. Um, Pemberton Greenish had gone from zero to 11 million in revenues over an 18 year period and had its own particular niche uh, based in offices just off Sloan Square. So uh, not exactly um, legal land. Um, and it, back to Rob's initial point, the firm is finding it very difficult to attract uh, the caliber of resources uh, to, to the firm and therefore finding it difficult to, to sustain that growth. Um, in terms of profitability, it was performing really very well. So it was far from being in a distressed position, um, but neither did it have the wherewithal to grow and to scale up and to invest, if you like, in um, technology and people. Um, and so our criteria for a merger partner were very much based upon making Pemberton Greenish a better firm um, at which uh, a consequence of which you know, meant that it became a bigger firm as well. Um, but actually it was the quality and um, the culture which really drove our discussions. Thank you, that, that's, that's really interesting. And we've got a question here, um, which Zulon, I think you, you can pick up. Um, the, the question asks about whether there are different considerations um, to take into account if you're merging with different entities. And it's a point that Giles picked up before. So for example, if it is LLP merging with limited company or, or vice versa, rather than say LLP and LLP. And I guess we, we should also acknowledge that there are still some firms that are general partnerships that, and so I suppose that that's another a factor that some firms might need to take into account. Yeah, so the general partnership is probably the most stark example. Um, I don't know of any firm which has merged into a, into a general partnership. There may be general partnerships who have transferred their business and assets to an LLP or a company. Um, but, you know, uh, the, the potential liabilities that come with becoming part of a general partnership are, are usually a, a, red, a, a, quite rightly so, a red line for most firms. So um, thinking about your structure as well, if you are potentially looking for a looking for a merger, it may be that you need to restructure beforehand in order to make yourself a bit more attractive if you are a general partnership, for example. Um, in terms of issues around LLPs and LLPs and LLPs and companies, they're, they're mainly around, um, there'll, there'll be tax issues that um, um, Giles will perhaps can touch on, but um, uh, what do you do with your, what, what do you do with your capital um, in your LLP if you're transferring over to the company and how do you transfer that over to the company? How do you, how do you kind of replicate um, your LLP interest into company shares and um, how, how does a company shares um, kind of uh, um, translate into profit share, whether it's revenue profit share or capital profit share. So replicating that um, into the companies is, is usually quite a, a tricky issue. Um, it's easier if it's a listed company that you're going into because there are, you know, uh, you've got um, uh, listed shares with a, with a clear value. But if it's a private limited company, it's a bit more difficult. Mm. Um, with L, if, if you're the same type of entity, it's a much easier proposition, I think. Thank you. Well, I mean, all, all these planning tips seem to be pointing to if you're going to merge 
murder with knights. But anyway, let's let's move on. So, Giles, <laughs> do you do you have any uh, any comments on because I'm afraid Zulan just dropped you in it there on the sort of the tax and accounting side of the merging with a different entity. Yes, yeah, so maybe I'll just clarify what I said earlier. I'm not proposing everyone should merge with knights uh, for the avoidance of doubt. Uh, I'll leave that entirely to you as to whether you want to do that or not. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, given time uh, constraints on us, I would probably just say that, you know, don't worry too much about tax, but it may be a factor in all of this. I, I think it's really important that you look at the commercial rationale of what you're doing and then consider the tax consequences uh, in that order. And therefore, I may somewhat flippantly say, make sure you appoint a good advisor to uh, steer you through this, these uh, choppy waters. Great. I, I love it. On, on message, your colleagues will be leaping up and down. Um, great. Um, I, I just, Stuart, can we have a see? Uh, we just see if we can make the second poll work. I'd like just to see if, if people can, uh, can comment on whether or not they might consider uh, a merger in the next 10 years. And if we close that. Lovely. Thank you so much, Stuart. Ah, OK, that's really interesting. Um, that within the next 10 years. So, well, interesting. 45 percent of people would be considering a merger in, in that long term horizon, which um, I think sort of speaks a lot to the, the points that the, the panel have, have made. Um, in a moment, I'm going to ask our panelists just to, to come up with their sort of top tip. But we've got a, a last minute question here about how to um, resource uh, the, the, the kind of use your personnel internally. Um, in terms of the uh, merger process. And uh, the, the question there is, are we going to cover it on Thursday? I think the answer to the question in short is yes. One of the things we're going to cover off, and certainly now you've raised that point, we'll definitely make sure that we cover it off, is around that process. It's about sort of what goes on in that process. It's about how you staff that process. It's about how you run that process. Uh, we've covered a couple of points there, but that's certainly what we're planning to do. Um, and I wonder whether I could turn to each of the panellists now just to give me a 30-second top tip mergers sort of pulling together your 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 thoughts i mean zulon maybe we come to you first i i think lots of us have mentioned this already several times but it's worth reinforcing at the end again have a really clear rationale as to why you're doing it don't yeah. don't you think the merger is the answer to all your ills have a reason as to why you're doing it and then you'll find that you'll find the right one um and doing it for the right reasons thank you simon have a vision and um, require your partners to really uh, get behind that vision because funnily enough it's actually everyone else in the business which we who you know who need to understand what it is the firm's trying to achieve in any merger mm. so vision thank you uh, Rob so uh, back to is this what we need to do to achieve our objectives but objectives are changing all the time the world's changing all the time we've got the war in Ukraine we've got pressures on the professions we've got digitalization so just because you don't think a merger is the right thing today doesn't mean you switch the radar off, keep the radar on mm -hmm. and keep thinking about what if, what would the circumstances be under which we would think about merging with this firm? Thank you. And, and, and Giles, parting shot? <clears throat> There's no perfect merger partner out there. So if you do conclude a merger, expect some compromise of some form. Mm. I, I think that's very well, a bit, a bit like marriage, Giles. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, well, look, thank you all so, so much for your really interesting insights into this topic. I'm aware that we're at, we're at 10.30 now, so I think we're going to draw things to a close right there. Um, I'd like to thank all the participants for joining us this morning, uh, and also particularly to the panellists, and, and in particular our guest speakers, Simon and, and Giles. We really appreciate you, you joining us. And then finally, one, one final plug for the session, which follows on, on, on Thursday morning. 
can't catch it, we will record it, but we'd, we'd love to see you on Thursday morning at 9.30. Um, great, that's, that's lovely, nice to see you all. Thanks again.